You're listening to Myself with Others, and I'm your host, Adam Schatz. This is the second part of my conversation with the bassist and composer, William Parker. As William told me in our conversation, you only have one life to live, so it's important to be a multidimensional person. William pretty much defines multidimensional. That's one reason I decided that our conversation really should be in two parts. In the second part, William spoke to me about his work with the likes of Cecil Taylor, Bill Dixon, the David S. Ware Quartet, his writing and poetry, his thoughts about musical and artistic traditions, his beliefs about freedom and community. What's always defined William's work is the deep political and social content of all his music, the way he ties together music, community, and revolutionary social change, even in the worst of times. I find his perspective deeply inspiring, as inspiring, in fact, as the music itself. I hope you enjoy our conversation. This episode of Myself with Others has been sponsored by Chamber Music America. For over two decades, with the generosity of the Andrew Mellon Foundation and the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, Chamber Music America has commissioned over 500 original works by American composers, including Andrew Cyril, David Murray, Sylvie Courvoisier, George Lewis, Tanya Leon, Steve Reich, Julia Wolfe, David Sanchez, Vijay Iyer, and others. Chamber Music America's commissioning programs provide artistic support for performance, touring, recording, and archiving new works. Visit www.chamber-music.org for more information. When you came on the scene in your late teens, early 20s, it was in the early years of the loft era in New York. I believe your first recording session was an ESP album by the tenor player Frank Lowe. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the first one. There was another one, maybe it was later, with uh, Kapo Ometsu and Ahmed Abdullah and Yuri Harada. I don't know. I think that was a little bit later, but it could have been recorded and released later. But that was recorded at the artist's house, the one with uh, Frank Lowe. Was this a really enthralling period for you? I mean, you'd been listening to all this incredible music at your parents' house, practicing, taking bass lessons from Wilbur Ware. And now you're thrown into this milieu where, you know, you're playing with Don Cherry and Ed Blackwell and meeting Gene Lee and becoming acquainted with all these incredible improvisers uh, in a scene that really was one of the great scenes of its time. Do you remember it as being a, you know, a particularly exciting time for you as a musician? That was very exciting because every day I would meet a new musician. Every day was a new experience because I, I didn't had any experience. And all of these interesting people. One day you mentioned, you know, Gene Lee and Gunter Hampel, and then I'd meet Rashid Ali, and then you're over at Rashid's house, and then Marzette Watts would come over, and you follow him back to Marzette's house on Cooper Square, where he was living at the time. The same building where Archie Shep had lived and where previously Hetty Jones had lived with, with Amiri Baraka. Yeah. So every day was a was a, a great experience. And I, I met everybody at the time. 
and the music was just happening 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 all over the place and it was just growing from from 1971 to 1980 it was like a very very uh, fruitful period you were flying in those years oh yeah because we, we would play all day all night all day all night and it was it was really it was really jumping it was really wonderful the business happened when the guys from Chicago and LA and St. Louis came and the business began to happen because they would say, you guys aren't taking care of business. You know, y'all, y'all play for three hours straight, but y'all, y'all, y'all got to take care of some business, which means you got to start recording and you got to start this and that. And we would say, mind your own business. I remember not so long ago, William, I was on a panel for the vision festival. You were on the same panel and a very intense dispute broke out. It involved lingering tensions between the Association of the Advancement of Creative Musicians, the AACM in Chicago, and the New York scene. I hadn't realized just how intense those divisions were. Well, you know, what it was, it has since then ironed out. I've recorded with Lester Bowie, I did a record. I played with Henry Threadgill. I played with Moore Richard Abrams. I played with Ernest Dawkins, Douglas Ewart, Oliver Lake, Hamiet Blewett, you know, Butch Morris. So when you get to know people and they get to know you, they begin to, it was their first entrance into the New York scene and evaluating how we operate and how, okay, well, if you're a New York musician, you didn't get any press. People didn't know what you did, how you did it, and it wasn't any value because they couldn't figure out what you were doing. But as if you had musicians from Chicago and you had charts that were kind of leading towards what they call new music, then that had value. You're talking about scores by people like Anthony Braxton and Wadada Leo Smith. Well, it could be them. I don't yeah. want to mention any names. You mention names. I don't want to mention any <laughs> names. But, but the thing is that they, because the people who gave out the money respected scores, they didn't respect, well, okay, one, two, three, play, because they couldn't see, well, how can you make music with one, two, three, play? What is that about? But if you have a score, you can get a grant. If you've got a, uh, a paper in front of you, you can get a grant, and we didn't get any grants. But like I said, we didn't care. At that point, we didn't care because we just wanted to play music. Our job wasn't to get a grant. Our job was to enlighten people. To use music as this healing force of the universe. Yeah, that's all it was about.
for years, you have been working on and off on this this book, right? This book of stories about the jazz world that are unpublishable until your death. Am I right about that? Or yes, you're right. I've, okay. I've mentioned that to several okay. people. Okay, yeah. so you you shared with me some of these stories over the years when I've written on people like Don Cherry and, and Gene Lee. And, you know, some of them have to do with the less healthy responses of some of the people we really admire to the stresses of the economic and political stresses of that period in New York jazz. Those stresses had to do with the economics of jazz and the fact that musicians were not really being paid the way that they should have been paid. They also had to do with racism and the the way that the music was not really understood as occupying the same exalted status of Western classical music. And some musicians responded by getting mixed up in bad habits. You observe that, obviously, because you have these, these stories. Did that pain you to see that on the part of musicians you really you know, deeply respected, to see them succumbing to these demons? Because you didn't. Well... It didn't pain me because that was, you know, they were, the idea is, okay, they do what they do, I do what, what I would do. I've got a... You had a family by then. You I can't, yeah, exactly. I can't get involved in what musicians do on their spare time. What I was concerned about, if you come to the bandstand and, and you're ready to, to, to play the music. I mean, there's a lot of funny things that happen, but... You know, I think that, that yeah, I, it, it didn't pain me at all because I, I, I wasn't a counselor and, and I did get into a little counseling later on. But again, it was it was just work trying to keep somebody, you know, somebody alive and helping them along the way. But that's that was just part of the, uh, the course. People say that people are victims, but actually, they, you know, you act they're actually a volunteer. You in the early '70s, you met your life partner Patricia Nicholson, the dancer and choreographer, with whom you've worked uh, very, very closely, and have also raised a family. I mean, in a sense, kind of carrying on the tradition of people like Alice and John Coltrane or Don Cherry and and his wife Moki. Life must not have been so easy then, though, making a living as a musician. Later on, you created a group called In Order to Survive, and you obviously had had experience of the difficulties of trying to survive on the kind of art that you were making. I, I just wonder, was there ever a moment in those early years when you thought, you know what, maybe I need to do something else, or maybe I need to go into teaching, as a lot of jazz musicians of a previous generation had done? I mean, you know, Max Roach, Archie Shep, Marion Brown, uh, even Cecil, briefly, Roscoe Mitchell, they all went into teaching at one time or another. Was it, was it uh, a bit of a struggle? It was a struggle paying the rent and paying bills, but I didn't blame it and associated it with the music. It was a, it was a struggle. He <laughs> said, well, why didn't you pay your rent? Oh, I didn't have any money. So, <laughs> but I didn't never blamed it on the music because the music was, was one thing. I remember in 1975, this was like shortly after I got married. Patricia told me, she said, you got to quit that. I had a, had a job working the housing authority. Quit that job and concentrate on the music. And that's what I did. And whatever ups and downs we had, you know, assistance, this, that. Things weren't that expensive, but 
everybody had low rent and nobody was paying their rent. Okay, and I can, you know, get into names of guys who were very well known who couldn't pay their rent, and then people who were a little less known couldn't pay their rent. It, it was a, a lot of equality as far as, as that kind of thing. But, you know, it's all a matter of your spirit of survival. I think that what kept you alive is hope, is it being optimistic about tomorrow, and not uh, optimistic like tomorrow a dove is going to come down and and drop money on your head, but that just that tomorrow, there will be a tomorrow and you'll be able to play some music. Instead of playing it once a week, you'll be able to play it at the Village Vanguard or you'll be able to play it at Carnegie Hall or wherever people wanted you to play it, you will be able to play it. You know, and if you got lucky and you went to Europe, you'd play it. But the main thing is that you really wanted to play music and you didn't know who, what was going to happen tomorrow. But you didn't lose faith, and and and, that, and I think that was a gift that I, we didn't lose faith. Everybody was just like they never lost faith in the music. You know, some people said, "Okay, well, I I have the ability to do architecture, so Jamil Moondock will get a drafting job every now and then." For him to get a drafting job was like, you know, like washing the dishes. It wasn't a big deal. He could do it. Other people would say, "Okay, I can get a teaching job. I'll do it." But if those people that were only could play music, somehow they survived one way or the other. And this is with all the musicians. Uh, wherever you were from, you all everybody had to pay rent. And uh, it, was a, it was a process to, like now, I mean, I, I wish there were certain people I should have been hanging out with more than I did because we had more things in common than I knew at the time. And so, uh, but you can't go back, you know, today's today and yesterday was yesterday. So you can't go back. So now I'm, I'm trying to be, you know, be a little more communicative with people and stay in touch with people and not really put any walls between who people are. You know, I've been making contacts with, you know, with Anthony Davis and the people I knew, you know, Mark Dresser, who moved to San Diego. We did this thing, Deep Tones for Peace. So I've been not really limiting myself because most a lot of musicians aren't, aren't even alive now that were alive in the 70s. I mean, you like to say, well, you won't have, you know, Sonny Simmons just died, Henry Grimes, Giuseppe Logan, and many, many, many more. Uh, Mark Whitecage passed away, Kenny Simon, so many people you heard of them or didn't hear of them, they're not here. So you have to go with who you have and try to find some, you know, communion with the people who are still here if you can. But sometimes you have to be a hermit. You have to be reclusive. One of the songs on migration of silence in and out of the tone world, Blue Limelight, is a poem that you wrote about Cecil Taylor just after you learned uh, he died. You worked with Cecil Taylor from the late 1980s for about, about a decade. I want to read a few lines of the poem. Bridges dancing across the sky, grapefruits, lemons, morning mountain, precious beauty, mother, 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 please care, please care, father, my father, my father, my father, cornbread, 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 cornbread.
if you knew Cecil as I did, it really does remind you of him because well, we know how much Cecil loved his mother. We also know that his father was a cook and he would often talk about the food that his that his father prepared for him. You met Cecil on the loft scene long before you began to play with him regularly. Yeah, I met him in, in 73, taken to his house by the trumpeter from our band Ensemble Muntu, uh, when he was living 96 Chambers Street. And then I met him again when I was playing uh, Don Cherry at the Five Spot. He would come by the Five Spot and, and we'd talk a little bit. And, uh, and of course, we did a concert together. I was part of a large ensemble in March 1974 at Carnegie Hall uh, playing for George Wien. And so I heard a lot. I mean, those were his sentiments is that he some some days he would talk about a ripe peach or he talk about lemons or he talk about a grapefruit that he had what you got to cry is that he was always asking you know his mother to love her but then he would you know have a conflict here and there but then he'd also talk about well, she was tough his mother was tough yeah 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 uh, apparently so i <laughs> apparently so but at the same time he loved her so there was this conflict. You know, my mother was tough, but she introduced me to Splitskaya and the ballet and all of this. And the father, and the father, he always took the cornbread that his father made. So all of that is in, the, is in the poem. When you first went to rehearse with Cecil, it seemed as if he was playing all the parts of the music. And you had a hard time at initially trying to figure out what your place in it was. Yeah, I mean, we, we rehearsed at Vernon Gillis's loft soundscape in the 51st Street and the West Side. What Cecil would do is he'd read out the what he was playing and you'd write it down, whichever way you chose to, if you chose to. And then he had movement on, from moving from left to right with his left hand and right hand. And so at first I said, well, okay, because uh, you want to play in the vocabulary that somebody's playing, but his vocabulary was not my vocabulary. Then I thought after a little time in the rehearsal, okay, that nobody can play all the parts. And obviously there are a lot of elements in music that were not there. So it was my job to put in those elements and play the way I play. And I think that's what he wanted. And if I could interpret the intervals, everything he did was intervalic, very little chromatic material. And then have a put a rhythmic bass on it and a drive that would push him a little bit, then I could be successful playing in that band. We're gonna to listen to a short passage from the first recording that you made with Cecil Taylor, the Cecil Taylor unit, the eighth.
Another important association that you made in the 1970s was with David S. Ware, the saxophonist. At the time that you met David S. Ware, I think he was driving a cab, but he was contemplating returning to music. And you formed a trio with him and the drummer, Dennis Charles, who had also played with Cecil Taylor. What were your first uh, encounters with David S. Ware like? Well, I actually met David earlier than that because uh, him and David S. Ware, Gene Ashton, known as Coopermore now, Mark Edwards and Dave Sapper had a group called Apogee, which was playing uh, 1973 at 501 Canal Street. So I heard them there, and then they played Studio Rivby, uh, 24 Barnes Street, and also at KCR, we did a double bill with Ensemble Muntu and David S. Ware, the Washington Square Church. You know, David would come, the drummer William Hooker would come, who was, who was at, uh, around at the time. And so there was this, like, we felt that we were part of that scene. Now, now we weren't alone. Muntu was not alone. And David was a, was a very quiet person. And at the time he was studying, he was at that time he was into meditation and he was into yoga and being a vegetarian. He also though, paradoxically liked to go to shooting ranges. Yeah, later on, later on, later on. And David was just, he had a, he had a big sound. If you ask his roommate in college, Berkeley School of Music was Mike Brecker. We talked to Mike Brecker. He said David sounded the same way in Berkeley School of Music that he sounds now. And the incredible thing about David S. Ware's sound is that it channels Late Train and Albert Eiler and Sonny Rollins, but sounds utterly original. Yeah. Also, you know, was one of David's men on saxophone was Yusef Latif. Mm. Gene Ammons was also one of David's saxophone guys. And so he liked a lot of deep saxophone players. And but he always would sound like himself, you know, when he was shedding with Sonny Rollins. Apparently he would play and Sonny would play and he would play and Sonny would play and then they'd play together. So he was able to absorb all of this stuff, but at the same time, if you put all of that stuff together, you come up with your own sound that includes elements of that use of Albert Eiler in there or John Coltrane in there which is you're drilling from the top of the horn to the bottom of the horn. And then David played a long time with Cecil Taylor. The way he would put his compositions together were very similar to the way Cecil would put his compositions together. You know, David notated in a different way, but it was, it was cells of sound put together with bass lines and harmonies added. If I'm not mistaken, there's a strong influence of the classic Coltrane Quartet in the quartet that you formed with David S. Ware, Matthew Shipp, and various drummers. The drumming chair was, was held by different people, Guillermo Brown and Susie Ibarra and Mark Edwards and, and others. Well, I looked at it this way. I mean, I looked at it this way. I mean, that was a band formed by David. And uh, I looked at, like, you had the John Coltrane Quartet, and then the group after that was Frank Wright Quartet with Bobby Few, Alan Silva, and Muhammad Ali. And then we came after that group, which could have been a, you could, whatever you heard in there, you heard in there. You know, people heard different things in there. And so that quartet was, um, I don't know if anybody's actually done an in-depth study on David Ware, 
I hope someone writes a book. He deserves it. Writes about his music, and that and that means listening to every track, talking to the musicians who are on it, and trying to say, well, well, what were you doing here, and what happened here, and how was this put together? Because that's how you really get to get to understand the music from the people who are playing it, and even the people who are playing music. Sometimes they don't really can't really tell you. I don't. You know exactly what happened, but then you don't need to know what happened. You can just feel it and listen to it. And you know, I don't really care what scale you were playing on that track. I mean, it was happening. Did you introduce David to uh, the pianist Matthew Ship? Okay,、uh, they asked Matthew that the other day. He said, "Well, I was recommended by William Parker, but also Reggie Workman recommended、uh, Matthew, and、uh, because David was looking for." Someone, a new voice, and he he wanted to sort of have a fresh start into the music world again. You know, we had recorded a record called Passage of Music, my, myself, Mark Edwards, and、uh, David on silk hearts. A very very good record, but again, a, a record people sleep on. All of these very good records, and that was a trio record.、Uh, Matthew joined the band, and we even had a, a period where we had. Daniel Carter was in the band for a while, and also the trombone player Alex Lodico was in the band. So, but then it morphed back into a quartet. Very, very exciting group.、I、love playing with that group. Very exciting. I think it's one of the defining groups of, of its time. And of course, you went on to make beautiful work with Matthew Shipp. We're going to listen to an excerpt of the David S. Ware Quartet with William Parker. A piece called "African Drums" by Beaver Harris. Whether you wanted to say anything about your work, the work that you did with Bill Dixon, one of the most towering figures in post-war avant-garde music, a thinker and a brilliant man, also in some ways a, a difficult man. What was it like working with Dixon? I heard Bill Dixon in the early '70s doing a piece called "Do Horse" for solo trumpet. I had previously heard about him doing this record on RCA called "Intents and Purposes" that was recorded in 1967. So I knew about Bill, but then at the time, Bill had left New York and had gone up to start the Black Music Department in Bennington College. 
And we were organizing a festival in 1984 called the Sound Unity Festival, myself and Peter Koval, and, uh, Patricia and some other people. I called Bill up and introduced myself and said, we're doing this festival because Bill played in the festival. And I said, we're having a meeting. So he came from North Bennington, Vermont, and he attended the meeting. Yeah. And we were talking about the part of the inspiration for the festival was the, the October Revolution or musicians doing their own festival. And the, the focus of that meeting was about get away from the give me a gig mentality. We talked about changing the trajectory from give me a gig to create your own gig. Because if we wait to be given a gig, then we're at the mercy of, well, I can't give you a gig because you don't draw. I can't give you a gig because I don't like your music. I can't give you a gig because you're not popular. I can't give you a gig because I just don't like you. Okay, so he helped us out in the organ and, and just in the theoretical idea of the festival sound unity. And that's when I began communicating with Bill. And then I did some work with him up at Bennington College three, four times. Where both he and Milford Graves taught, and apparently they didn't like each other very much. Yeah, well, you know, they, they, they had an interesting relationship. But later, you know, later on, Bill and Milford, they did a beautiful duo at the, at the Village Gate that Reggie Workman produced. And they played beautiful together. You know, it's just, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe Reggie has that tape, but that would be interesting to put it out. And Bill played the whole evening for a trumpet player to play for like two hours is, is like, you know, with, with Milford was great. And he did the same thing playing with David S. Ware. Well, we played at the Knitting Factory. He was a guest with the David S. Ware Quartet, but he also played with Peter Cobalt, David S. Ware, and Andrew Sorrell down at Sweet Basil's. So Bill was a, Bill was, uh, you know, he had his reputation, but he could deliver the goods when it came time to, to play. So I played in small groups with him, with duos, trios, quartets. Tony Oxley and Barry Guy. Yeah, that was a little bit later on. At first, we were using, we had Lawrence Cook. Mm. We had Lawrence Cook and Marco Anidi. And I think we have a record called Thoughts. Was It's Thoughts on Soul Note. Yeah. And uh, Mario Pavone, who just passed away. Another great bassist. So in the small groups, Bill didn't have any written music. All the music was written on the spot with the trumpet and the timbre of the music leading the music. He didn't say very much. He would just hope that everybody would feel each other. We'd play, and then music would happen. And the effect is quite compositional. Well, you know, that's kind of interesting. You know, use the word compositional. See, that was one of the things we talked about the class the other night. So what does that mean? Compositional versus improvisational? I probably should have said notated because uh, clearly improvisation is real-time composition. But, you know, what you were saying about Dixon and the October Revolution and this whole uh, ethos of self-determination, let's create our own opportunities. I wonder, was that model an influence on you when you and Patricia uh, Nicholson, your, your wife, created the Vision Festival? Oh yeah, that, you know, the Jazz Composers Orchestra, that uh, Carla Blay. And Michael Mantler, right? And Michael Mantler, the Jazz Composers Guild, which came before the orchestra. Paul Blay. Yeah, which was, 
Yeah, Archie Shep and Lay and Dixon. Uh, because when you get the true stories of who really started these things, you know, everybody tells you a different story, and what's written down is even a different story. But Carla and all of them say that Bill started it. That Bill was the main guy who started. If you talk to Alan Silver, who was there, he'll tell you. And I think Archie left once he got the impulse contract. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, the Ornette wouldn't join, John Coltrane wouldn't join, but they said they they supported it. So it was very hard idea to that kind of thing to have an organization run by musicians for musicians who are who, who have different ideas and different mindsets about where the music should go. But it definitely was an inspiration. The October Revolution, uh, the alternative Newport Festival that. Uh, Max Roach and Charles Mingus did. All of these things gave you an idea of what could be done. You know, we didn't know, you don't know exactly what they did and how it happened exactly. You know, you, you know, you can talk to them, but the idea is that they said, okay, we're going to do a concert that we're going to produce. We're going to put out our own record. We're going to do a festival that we can produce. We're going to take control of the means of production. We're going to put out our own records. It, it makes me think, for example, of, of Julius Hemphill, someone I wrote about recently who started out by creating Imbari Records and released Doggone AD on Imbari Records. Yeah, everybody was doing it. Everybody was doing it in the 70s. Uh, what, what also occurs to me is that a, another expression of taking control of the music and representing one's own art is writing. You know, historically, jazz music has been written about by people who don't play it, don't necessarily have a strong biographical connection to it. Uh, Amiri Baraka wrote a, a famous and controversial article uh, in the early 60s called Jazz and the White Critic. Mm -hmm. Now, in the early 80s, Art Taylor, the drummer, uh, published an extraordinary collection of interviews with musicians called Notes and Tones. You've, I think, carried on that tradition with your own collections of conversations with musicians and poets and, and other creative people. Uh, there are three volumes so far, and I believe a fourth volume uh, is in the works. I, I wondered whether those books, which are really a, a, a tremendous piece of work, do you think of them as being in the tradition of of, of Taylor's book or of A.B. Spellman's uh, Four Lives in the Bebop Business? Well, more in uh, Arthur Taylor, but also because he's, you hear the musicians speaking, but and they had a conversation, but also A.B. Spellman's book, which was, you had lots of quotes in that book by the musicians telling their story, and he interviewed other people. So, I mean, uh, but Arthur Taylor's book, was the inspiration for conversations and in that uh, you have it directly from the horse's mouth and not so much uh, interpretation, but also the fact that I consider myself a horse as well. So when I speak to, you know, I'm a musician, so musicians get together. It's a little different than a non-musician talking to a musician. There's a different language, a different understanding. So the result is slightly different.
in recent years, you've been playing with a lot number of, of young and really gifted musicians. I'm thinking of someone like James Brandon Lewis, saxophonist, or for that matter, somewhat older, but Craig Taborn, the pianist with whom you have a collective trio, uh, Farmers by Nature. Do you feel confident, enthusiastic about the vitality of this musical tradition that you've embodied? Do you feel like it's moving forward? Do you, I mean, you've described the music as being on this reservation, as, as really suffering from a kind of aesthetic discrimination. We started this conversation with you saying that certain musicians hadn't gotten the invitation to the Harlem Cultural Festival. That's still true to some extent today. But do you think it's gotten any better for people working in this Spain? Okay, you're dealing with a couple of different layers of things. Since the civil rights movement, we, we have a, a Malcolm X postage stamp. And at one point, he might have been the number one on the FBI's most wanted list. Things get watered down, they get bought, they get condensed, and things get accepted. So where when we were coming up, you had, you, you, you were still just getting over the part of trying to be able to vote for some people. Uh, in 1955, you know, Emmett Till happened. So the music that was coming out of, you know, from 1955 to 1975 in that 20-year period was still about, for some people, was about it's not safe to come out yet. We still got to scream. We still got to shout. Now, if you're born and coming out in, the tw in 2000, you say, well, okay, well, I don't have to scream and shout so much now. I don't even know what that is. But what I can do is I'm, I want to play music that's interesting. I don't want to play music that screams and shouts because I have nothing to scream and shout about. What about post-George Floyd? Well, okay. Then by then, those who, whose fire was taken away is trying to light the fire. But by then, it's like it becomes, it's not a fad, but it becomes something that, I mean, I was in, in Vermont up there last year and, uh, and the, the farmers have big signs in their windows, Black Lives Matter. And there's not a black person living in those houses. Because I know when I go to Vermont, I always say, well, I, now I know there's one black person in Vermont. So, uh, so people catch, it, 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 sometimes people just catch on to things and they use it, they appropriate it, is the word. And uh, so things are different. As far as the tradition, the tradition is made up of the individual personality of the musician put into the times, put into the vision, which is also connected with the individual musical personality. So that's all changed. The music is changing. You know, Fred Anderson is gone. Billy Bang is gone. That, yeah, that's finished. And I say, well, you know, jazz reservation is that you're not going to get another one of these. You know, blew it, Hammy blew it, it's gone. You, it's not, you, know, you just won't get another one, but you will get something. And so I think that the tradition is, is growing and the tradition is not repeating the past. The, re, re, the tradition would mean creating a new tradition at the moment that serves the needs of the moment. And hopefully that tradition is strong and powerful and not just watered down but it's also in the moment. It's in the moment 
that you need it, so therefore it's okay. If you're using electronics, if you're using hip hop beats, if you you know if that's what you're doing, that's what you're doing. You you can't be like an old fogey and say you know well it's not it's not the pure cosmic music. Well, no, it's not. The pure cosmic music is is in the cosmos, you know. And what it is is what it is. You have these young people doing stuff; they're going to do it. They're going to do it their way. But the important thing is to create what Ornette Coleman called a garden of sound. That's the rep that reflects its era. Well, yeah, but you see, but you got to remember also, if it's left up to some people, you know, that they would still be slavery. You see that you know there was still uh, somebody told me this morning that that hard rock was a right wing music. And that uh, it, that was the basis of it. It's, it's, it's a Trumpian music. I said I didn't, I didn't know anything about hard rock, but uh, I'm going to investigate it for the future. So, but I guess to to make this answer really concise is that the tradition is an ongoing thing. The masterpiece is a living thing that's created every moment. And yes, the good old days are gone but we have the days of now and uh, we have to accept that and see what comes next. Nobody's trying, you can't repeat yourself. You know, it's gotta be different than it was and it will be different and it's gotta be strong, but it's got to in the end, uplift people and enlighten people from the way I, I look at it. You have to uplift people and enlighten people. If that's not happening, then maybe the, you know, it's, it's gonna be a failure. If we're just creating music like, you know, to make money and it's not uplifting and enlightening people and showing them the other world, the world beyond this world, then maybe we'll fail. William, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. You've been listening to part two of William Parker on Myself with Others, a podcast by Adam Schatz. Myself with Others is produced by Richard Sears. Thank you to Stephen Jorg and Aum Fidelity. The theme for Myself with Others is composed and performed by Richard Sears. All other musical selections are performed by William Parker and referenced in the episode notes. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe.